Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn how you can support the show and get exclusive access to podcast episodes not released to the public by visiting patreon.com slash Matthew C. Winner. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you today? Welcome to uh, our session, Redefining Boy Hero. Powering sensitive boys, debugging gender stereotypes to middle grade fiction. I am Matthew Winner. I'm your moderator today. I'm also the host of the Children's Book Podcast. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 565. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Last November, I had the esteemed privilege of moderating a panel at NCTE, the annual conference of the National Council of Teachers of English. The panel was titled Redefining the Boy Hero, Empowering Sensitive Boys and Bucking Gender Stereotypes Through Middle Grade Fiction. Sitting on the panel, among a standing room only crowd, were four exceptional children's book authors Alana K. Arnold, Aaron Entrada Kelly, Kekla Magoon, and Catherine Marsh. We only had one mic and it was affixed to the podium, so I wasn't sure how this recording would turn out. Thankfully, my Zoom H4N Pro went above and beyond, allowing this panel and the noteworthy thoughts of my panelists to be recorded for others to hear. It gives me great pleasure to share this conversation with you. I sincerely hope you enjoy listening. Please welcome my guests, Alana K. Arnold, Aaron Andrade Kelly, Kekla Magoon, and Catherine Marsh. We have lots and lots of really wonderful people up on the panel today. Um, as a school librarian, my experience is always that I know the authors by name, but not often by face. So I hope you'll take time to take in these faces, because they've written the books that you love, and more importantly, they've written the books that your students love. So uh, I'm going to, I'll do many introductions, and then you, uh, I'm going to have you introduce your books um, through the lens of the topic that we're sharing today. Sound good? Cool. So uh, Alana K. Arnold um, is here with us today. She uh, today will be talking about her uh, series of a boy called Bat. Erin Entrada Kelly is joining us today. We're going to talk about Hollow Universe uh, with her, her new very winning novel. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, Kekla Magoon is here. The season of Sticks Malone is the book that all of your readers are obsessed with. Mine are all obsessed with it. So yay for that. And Catherine Marsh is also here. She wrote a gorgeous book called Nowhere Boy that I'm excited for uh, us to geek out over if you've also read it as well. Um, Oh, they're clapping. I did a great introduction, everybody. (laughs) You're welcome. We did a great job. Um, (laughs) Alana, could you please give us a sense of how your, your, your story empowers sensitive boys and or bucks gender stereotypes? Uh, yeah, well, I so I wrote uh, a series of books. The first in the series is called A Boy Called Bat, and the second one is Bat and the Waiting Game, and the third is Bat and the End of Everything, and they are um, a series of books uh, about a boy, uh, an autistic kid named Bixby Alexander Tam, who goes by Bat, who befriends an orphan skunk kit that his mother, who's a veterinarian, brings home, and he becomes determined to keep and care for it. And it is a gentle, soft... Um, quiet series about 
um, about a kid who has a big heart and a lot of love and a lot of ability to, uh, to give that love um, in the direction of animals. Um, and people too, although sometimes that's not as obvious to people what he's giving and what they're receiving. Um, I think that this is a book, I wrote the book because I wanted to, um, because I feel affinity with this character and with his story and his love of animals. But since the book has been published, I realize it is a book that um, bucks gender stereotypes in many ways. Um, it centers a boy who is intently caring for and parenting through the night, a tender baby animal who without his skills of, of, of caregiving would, um, would suffer. And he carries it in a sling and he feeds it from a bottle and I think that he nurtures it. Um, and so I think probably that's one of the ways that this book um, expands what it is to be, I mean, he's certainly a hero to this little baby skunk. Um, so I think that's one of the ways that it expands the, the landscape of, of, of a way boys can be in books. It's also really, I read, I read the second chapter a lot when I go to school visits. Um, nothing happens in it at all. But it's a book that is really about the internal, slow-down, um, gentle reflection on who people are and what matters to them, as opposed to what people do. And I think, in a way, maybe that is kind of radical for a book about a boy character, um, which is a happy accident, because like I said, I just wrote the book I wanted to write, and I didn't think about any of that, which is like, hey, look at that. I'm so glad to be on this panel and discussing these things. So it's like, yeah. I, think, I think you wrote a book that with a character that a lot of us love. I love him so much. I, I love Bad. And that's important. Too. Yeah, I think, thank you. If, if I'm known for one book in my whole life, um, I hope it's a boy called Bat. I love all my books. I'm very proud of my work. But this book is like kind of the best of who I am as a human in some ways. Yeah, the gentle, loving kindness that Bat feels for animals is a true reflection of, of how I feel. Um, so I'm, I'm just really pleased that... So thank you to anyone who's shared Bat with your readers. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now I'll end. Thank you. Thank you. Go back, go! <laughs> Erin, would you mind introducing yourself and your book through the lens of our topic today? Sure. So I'm the author of Hello Universe, and Hello Universe uh, centers around a boy called uh, Virgil Salinas. And Virgil is uh, very shy and sensitive, and he's always picked last for basketball at school. Um, and there's a part in the book where he describes his family. They're all very, very outgoing. And uh, he describes them as having personalities that bubble over like uh, pots of soup. And he feels like the unbuttered toast mm -hmm. next to them. <laughs> um, and he's kind of juxtaposed with um, the, the two main girl characters in the book, both of whom are very independent, strong-willed, and, and opinionated. Um, and he is basically none of those things. So, you know, I didn't necessarily sit down and say, I'm going to think of all the gender stereotypes I can think of and write opposite of all that. Um, basically, I wanted to write, um, I wanted to have a boy main character, which I had not done before, and I modeled Virgil a lot after myself. So, um, because like him, I was very quiet and introspective, and he has his best friends are his Lola, his grandmother, and his guinea pig, Gulliver. Um, and he really doesn't have any friends at all to speak of. So I guess kind of juxtaposing him against um, Valencia and Kaori, who are the two girl characters, um, maybe in a lot of ways that, that bucks some stereotypes because Kaori and uh, Valencia are, you know, uh, they're not afraid to speak their mind, they're very independent and opinionated, and he's none of those things. So, um, in a society that kind of celebrates, you know, brawn and, and swagger, Virgil has none of that. Um, and it was important for me, uh, just like in all my books, for characters to um, not necessarily change who they are to fit the mold of the society they're in, but change how they feel about themselves. Mm -hmm. So that was a very important journey that I hopefully focused on and executed in Hello Universe. Yeah, I mean, you've also got a, a, another male character who is standing in stark contrast to Virgil. Yes. Um, who is part of the reason why Virgil ends up in a well. Yes, um, yes. That's Chet. So Chet we'll is the... Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, Chet is basically the neighborhood bully, and he um, is trying to figure out uh, how to, basically how to be a man or how to be a boy um, in the society that he's in, and he models his behavior after his father, who he very much idolizes. And his, uh, in the book, I, I tried to incorporate things like microaggressions and um, that, that Chet uh, witnesses his father partaking in, like certain language or certain words that he uses that um, Chet internalizes. And he, he uses his father as a role model, but his father is not necessarily an ideal role model because he's a bully himself. Um, so Chet also, you know, is, it goes against uh, what Virgil is. And, and of course he teases Virgil mercilessly because Virgil is small for his age, that's another thing. Um, and because he's quiet and doesn't really speak up for himself, Chet, as bullies often do, uh, kind of hone in on that and, and take advantage of it. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I, um, I think there are probably a lot of boys, maybe some of us boys in the room, um, that saw themselves in Virgil as well. I, in particular, saw myself in Virgil, uh, which is why I wanted to point out that there was also Chet, because <laughs> there's always a Chet there's in, always our, in a our Chet. lives, right? Yeah, no matter but, how old you are, there's always a Chet. But I mean, for Chet, too, that um, Chet's got adults that he's looking up to and trying to grow up in their image, because that's the person modeling for him what it means to be an adult. So thank you for that. Kekla. <laughs> Would you mind introducing Sticks Malone to our lens? Sure. So the season of Sticks Malone uh, stars Caleb Franklin, who is 10 years old, and all he wants is to be not ordinary. He doesn't know what the other thing is, but he knows that that's what he wants to be, just not ordinary. And unfortunately, his father has told him that he's not just ordinary, but extraordinary. And he does not understand what that means. He thinks that extraordinary means the most plain, the most boring, the most ordinary human that has ever existed. And he, the story essentially centers around the, his goal of being anything but. And um, so he, he meets um, Styx Malone, who is the 16-year-old, very cool, older boy, neighbor, um, who I think is more stereotypically masculine than either Caleb or his brother, Bobby Jean, um, but also has a softer side. Um, and, and so they follow Styx. You know, Caleb basically decides that Styx Malone is the key. If I can be like Styx Malone, I will be special. I will be different. I will be something else. Um, and so really, you know, it's a story about figuring out what's special about yourself and the fact that while Styx is giving Caleb and Bobby Jean a lot, they're also giving him something really important, friendship, kindness, love, and something he hasn't experienced much in his life. Their father is a loving and supportive father to these boys who are m both more artistic and sensitive and um, uh, or sort of outwardly sensitive, I should say, than their dad, He, you know, who's very traditionally into sports. He watches the news every night and yells at the TV. He's got a little more of an aggressive personality and yet doesn't press that onto his boys. So I think that that's an interesting dynamic um, in the book is that, you know, Caleb knows that his father wants him to be something different than he is, um, and yet his father isn't actually pressuring him to, to be that. It's just what Caleb interprets um, about his father. And um, there's a, a boy in the book named Corey Cormier who's been a bully to Bobby Jean, um, and you know he's a sort of you know sort of beefy guy who like loves to beat people up and will tell you I can take you anywhere, anytime, any place. Um, but he's also always wanted a baby sister, and so part of the story is Caleb and Bobby Jean in the in the early you know while they're trying to make a name for themselves, um, try to trade their baby sister for something that they perceive to be better. Um, and and Corey Cormier ends up going home with their baby sister, and you know and he is you know this big bad bully is how they've seen him their whole lives, and then it turns out he just wants to cut and coo this little baby. And I think that that um, allows us to see how people can be a lot of things, right? You can be someone who is unkind at times, someone who perhaps is presenting a form of masculinity he believes he should present, but also has something else going on in him, in himself. And so seeing that relationship um, form between these boys who have been in some ways enemies, but find this common ground, um, I think is, is, a, is a cool facet of the story. Um, yeah, is that good? Yeah, I, I love that in the very beginning of the book, if you haven't read, the book is all about um, elevator trades. Is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah, yeah about yeah. trading up little things to little things to get from a paper clip to a jet ski or something by doing these series of trades. And um, the moment of, uh, there's a great scene with, with Cormier with the baby 
where he's like, look at this cute face she's making, but it's because she's about to spit up or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, I'll just let your armor down. It's wonderful. <laughs> All right, Catherine, would you mind sharing yes. a little bit about Nowhere Boy? Yes. Us, um, first of all, I'm a little small, so I hope you don't mind if I stand up, just also so I can project my voice better. Um, so uh, Nowhere Boy is about two boys, um, Max, who is an American um, expat who ends up being reluctantly uh, pulled out of his uh, home and school in Washington, D.C. to live in Brussels, Belgium for a year. And he ends up there in 2015, which is the height of the uh, refugee crisis. And while he's there, his life intersects with that of another boy, a 14-year-old Ahmed, who is a unaccompanied minor who's um, fled Syria and becomes separated and lost his family. Um, and these two boys uh, kindle a friendship. And it, this takes place during a year um, where my family was actually living in Brussels. We moved there. Um, and the events that took place in the book are actually events from the news, the terrorist attacks, the refugee crisis, um, and a lot of the you know attendant fears that were going on um, in that country, and that have you know become part of our sort of global uh, experience right now. Um, Max is a character that really speaks to this issue because he is an underachiever um, in a family of achievers, and I was really interested in writing about this kind of boy. Um, I'll talk a little bit more personally about that. Uh, you know, I think with the next question, but I really wanted to talk about this idea that, that children have, both boys and girls, that they need to be the best um, and that they need to really excel and to stand out at something. And Max is a boy who is not particularly athletic. He's not really got mastered school um, for a number of reasons. Um, he feels like he's always messing up. Um, and I think that I really wanted to write about that boy because he, I wanted to write about this issue of self-worth in boys and how it can be found through other things beyond sort of the stereotypical sports school kind of realm. And Max does have some positive qualities that he's not really in touch with. He's observant, he's sensitive, he's kind. But these are things that he doesn't feel like are celebrated in his family particularly or in the society he's, he's come from. So in some ways, it's a bit of a, you know, a, a critical look at American society and how we treat children. Um, and these kind of standards we hold them to. Um, so I w the other thing is that both Max and Ahmed love comics and they love um, superheroes. And that's one of the things that kind of bonds them together, that and soccer slash football. Um, but there's this idea of heroism that's really important to the story of these two boys in the book and what heroism is. And what I try to do is subvert the kind of gender stereotype of male heroism as being something where you, you know, are strong or that you're, you know, a fighter. Um, and to talk about all these roles of men who nurture and do things that are using their sensitivity and their kindness um, that results in acts of heroism. And the book also incorporates a real story about a Belgian um, man who hid a Jewish teenager in his house during the war um, and um, ultimately died for that, um, for that boy. Um, and that sort of sensitivity and kindness is held up as a different kind of heroism that every single child is capable of, even if you're not good at the standard things. Um, so that is really the meat of my book. Um, and the last part is really about the relationship between these boys and the love between these two boys. And I think love between boys, particularly in this context in a platonic sense, is something that we don't allow always in this culture and that we don't talk about and we don't encourage boys to be allowed to feel love. Um, and so that was a really important part of the story for me. Awesome. Your book is so much about, all of your books are so much about giving, giving a child a sense of purpose but I really saw in Max here a chance that um, he could feel like he could do something and have value. And um, your entire story really takes us through a kid just trying to do the thing that will be the right thing and make him feel worth. And I really value that. Thank, Thank you for you. sharing your story with Thank us. Thank you. There's the books bigger. <laughs> We're gonna stay here for like 30 minutes on this slide. So I really wanted to make it worth your you're, you're photoing. Sorry. I tend to talk when I get a little nervous. <laughs>the children's book podcast is sponsored by Libro FM audiobooks. So, I know many of you have been listening for some time and you know that I am obsessed with audiobooks. And the reason why that is 
is because one, I can listen to them wherever I go, and two, because frankly, I'm a terribly slow reader, and three, the only time in the day that I've really been able to carve out time to read is after a long day of teaching, after we've prepared dinner for the kids, and we've bathed them, and we've sent them to bed at the very end of the night. That's when I can read, and it is hard to read and get through a novel at that pace. So, thankfully, we have audiobooks. You know, now you've got lots of options when it comes to buying audiobooks, but what if you could support local bookstores at no extra cost to you? Did you know Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore? You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including those New York Times bestsellers, recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, I get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but I'm part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of the Children's Book Podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter WINNER. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Uh, so, I want to go on to our next question, which is, um, did you first conceive these boys in your book, in your books, as we read them now? Um, or in what ways did you intentionally write the characters to defy these stereotypes that we're talking about? Because you have evidence that they do uh, defy this notion of, of toughness exhibited this way, or of um, sureness exhibited this way, but I wonder if they were always that way. You're welcome to, whomever feels we moved to start first, you're welcome to. I'll start, yeah, since yeah. everyone's looking at me. <laughs> I had a theory that maybe we'd go this way this time. That, that makes sense. That's that was my theory. Went first. Okay. Um, um, so all of, I think all writers are different in how they approach stories. And for me, um, all my books start with a character. So every book I've ever written have, has always started with a single character and then um, I ask the character questions, and uh, the story blooms from there. So I think some, some writers may start with a plot, you know, or even a genre. I want to write a science fiction novel. What is my sci-fi novel going to be about? But mine always start with a character. So for Hello Universe, it, it definitely started with Virgil, and I, I saw him as, as he is on the page now. Um, he hasn't changed that much, and I think it's because I spend a lot of time with the characters in my head, months where I don't write at all. Well, I write in my head, which accounts for me. Um, but I just think about the characters and get to know them. Um, so by the time I actually write something down, um, the characters are pretty much very three-dimensional in my mind. So um, Virgil very much mirrors the original image I had of him, which was a sweet, shy, lonely um, boy who, uh, who doesn't quite fit in. And I don't know that, I try not to be overly intentional. I think uh, most of us would agree. You don't want to be too intentional when you're writing, you know, and, uh, because then it becomes very cerebral. And then it, it comes across on the page. It feels like you're trying too hard. It just doesn't feel right. So. I don't know that I, I, I had much intention other than to write him as I, I saw and felt him. I like that you got to know him that way. Yeah. And that um, in that way he was able to tell his story to you. Yes. So I'm, I'm glad you were able to capture the story he was telling to you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I would, I would also agree. I didn't set out with an intention um, around defying gender stereotypes, but I do think that defying stereotypes in general <laughs> is something that I, I, I work with, and I think that defying sort of cultural expectations <laughs> in general is something that I, I work with a lot. Um, my, my original sort of, in, in, to the extent that I would have an intention, right, for the book, um, kind of relates to um, what Catherine was saying about what it means to be a hero, what it means to be someone who makes a difference, and I think that culturally we have expectations about what it means to be someone who can make a difference. We, we really hold up heroes when we talk about history, when we talk about the present day, um, people who've done things that we perceive to be exceptional. And I think that there's so many other ways that we can make a difference. There are, there are many, many 
people throughout history, many, many people in our own lives who have had more of an impact on us than anyone famous, right? And, and, and so all those little raindrops, you know, I use this metaphor of, you know, raindrops filling a bucket, right? You know, when we want change to happen or when we want to make a difference in the world, like every act of kindness, every act of, that's in service of justice, every, um, everything that we do in the world has some sort of impact. Um, and it's so easy to lose sight of that in the way that we talk about heroes. And I do think that that relates to gender because there are certain expectations on boys, there are certain expectations on girls, there are certain expectations on all of us to fit specific gen the specific gender binary and the specific gender ideals. Um, and, and so I think that those ideas are related the things that are expected of us, and the things that we perceive to be necessary in order to be someone who matters. Um, and that's something that I feel like I play with a lot in my work, is like, what does it mean to be someone that matters? And what does it mean if I'm a small person in the grand scheme of the world, right? There will probably not be history books that center on me, right? But that doesn't mean that I'm not doing good in the world. That doesn't mean that I don't matter. That doesn't mean that I don't make a difference. Um, and so when I'm writing about things that are more obviously about changing the world, like writing about civil rights and social justice, like with some of my YA, like Light It Up, um, it's more obvious, but it actually also plays out in a super light, fun middle grade like the season of Sticks Malone, because his core goal is to be something other than ordinary. And I think that a lot of people have that feeling, that fear, um, that, that stops us from taking action, that stops us from really being ourselves, because we think that being ourselves isn't enough. We have to change ourselves in order to be someone that matters. And so the message of this story, I think, connects to all sorts of identity elements, not just gender, um, in terms of what we think we're supposed to be and how we think we should act in the world. Um, and so really, for me, this is a story, again, that reminds me that I, what I can do is enough. What my voice does matters in the world. Um, and that that's true of everyone, even when it's hard to believe about ourselves, we are changing the world through our relationships and through all of these small moments. Yeah. So um, A Boy Called Bat started for me um, with a name. I, I wanted to name my character a name that had initials and spelled a word. I have a brother whose name is Z. His first name is just the letter Z. And his middle name is Anton, and his last name is Kuczynski, and so we've always called him Zach. So if you met him, you'd say, this is my brother Zach. You wouldn't think, oh, this is a kid with this name that's formed this. So my job as a writer, I think, and I think this is a great activity for kids, is to notice one thing in your real life and then ask, what if? So in this case, I said, what if I had a kid whose name was initials? But what if they spelled something else? What, what is another three-letter? I'm very... Um, literal. So as soon as I knew my brother had a three-letter name with A as a middle initial, immediately my character is going to have a three-letter name with an A as a middle initial, and then I realized Bat would be a great name for a kid. Um, and then immediately I said, well, what if, why would a kid want to be called Bat? His name is Bixby Alexander Tam. Why on earth would he want to be called Bat? That's not an animal that gets a lot of love. Um, and so I was got to be a kid who really loves animals. Um, and I knew very early on, too, that Bat was going to be a, a, an autistic kid. And um, a kid who loved, who really loved animals very, very much. So Bat grew for me out of a series of um, no things. I always think that my job as a writer is to notice something and then ask what if. And so I say that whenever I do a school visit. What did you notice today, you know? And then to play with that. And what, what if, what, you know, come up with three, you know, let's think about what ifs about things. So that's where a lot of Bat comes from. But I realized with some distance that it also came from a deep love of the Ramona Quimby books, which are books that center the quiet emotional life that doesn't feel quiet to the main character. It's the whole world. The things that happen to Ramona take up big space. And I think there are a lot of more books that allow the, emotion, the full emotional range of an internal life of a girl to be the forward-moving action of a book, where I think a lot of books about boys want it to be about what's happening outside of him and his reactions to it. And so I wanted books that were like Ramona in that they centered things that might to a grown-up or to an outsider feel like little things. Why are you making such a big deal of it? When to him, they are the whole world. Will he get to help this orphan skunk kit? Um, what will he do when he has to go to his dad's house for the weekend and he can't keep his eye on Thor, you know, personally? How will he, how will, the world might end, you know, in those moments. So, and, and really making sure to give a full range of emotional vulnerability to a character that I love so much and that is so much of my own heart. Um, yeah, so I don't always start with character, although I usually do. In this book I did for sure. Sometimes I start with, um, I have an, either an idea for a setting, like I have a book called The Question of Miracles, and the first thing I knew was where that book was going to be set, and then I had sometimes plot, like with, I have a novel called Damsel, which is young adult, and I knew 
what would happen in that book. It was the first time I ever really knew that. And then this, in this case, it was really who the book was about. And I do think that when you start from a different place, you kind of grow a different sort of book. Uh, mm -hmm. So this book that started with this character skewed very close to the character the whole way through. Um, and I think that that's especially useful when we think about um, the tiny incremental changes in a boy and how they're really everything in, you know, all of us, you know, all of us are made up of little tiny memories and moments, big things too, but it's often those little, those little things that define who we are um, as a person, those little decisions that we make and those little shifts that happen that can maybe be invisible to all, maybe everyone else in the world except for us. And those matter too. So that's where that came from. Yeah. Um, so this book was a very, it's a, it's a very personal book for me. Um, and one of the reasons it's very personal is because I'm the mother of one of these sensitive boys. Um, I have a child who is, um, you know, he's shy, he's physically slight, he loves to read, um, he's not always noticed in a group. Um, and I really, you know, I, I learned recently there's a term, late blooming boys, I've heard that applied. Um, or maybe we should just call them boys, okay? Um, I wrote this book in many ways as a roadmap for this child, um, a way to, to figure out how he could matter and how he could have self-worth in, in a society where I felt like there wasn't a clear path for boys like this. Um, and so in that sense, the book is very personal. And, um, you know, I tried to work in a lot of these steps of self-worth um, and appreciation for who these boys are that I think is lacking. Um, but I want to talk about my other character as well, Ahmed. And Ahmed has gone through a lot of trauma. And I think one of the things that people forget is that children who go through trauma often have to um, nurture and take care of, be care become caretakers of parents and family members. And that I really feel like is underappreciated because boys do that all the time um, particularly in families that are going through distress. And I really wanted Ahmed to also have this nurturing side, which comes out in many different ways in terms of how he nurtures uh, Max, in terms of a skill he has actually with plants and gardening. Um, but I felt that that was something that was also had not been sort of written about widely. So those, those two pieces were really important to me. Thank you. It, um, it strikes me that, um, Hecla, you mentioned, or maybe a number of you did, about the action-driven books for boys. And it strikes me as I'm spending, I've been spending the, the um, school year so far speaking to my, my fourth graders and third graders about the work of Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop and about windows and mirrors and how books aren't so binary, that sometimes they're, they're often they're both to us. But as you're saying this, it's striking me that um, I wonder if, if, if boys are given an awful lot of windows into actions and into experiences they've never done but are seldom given mirrors into what it means to just be and to have that space to know that that matters too the person you are right now matters the person you are in relation to others matters um i was saying to you prior to doing this panel um that in your books we often have these moments of of other characters um bashing your main characters and showing weakness by using terms like fag and queer and retardo and how um how that wasn't so different from how i grew up hearing those words and how I, I wondered how much of that i internalized as a child and how much i thought i wonder if that's really who i am and how how weak i am i wonder if the world perceives me that way um and how i didn't have books to show me that like that thing that you are is good the way you are is good I just had my mom saying, like, it's okay, you're a sweet boy, we like that. And I didn't need my mom to tell me that, because that's my mom's job to tell me that. I needed someone else to tell me that. But I wonder, um, I'm just thinking a lot about how much something that needs to be said or evidenced in order for us to believe it, and how often we hear that you're stupid, or that you're weak, or that you're a faggot, or that you're a retard, or whatever awful, awful word that we come up with to belittle someone and to take power away from someone. Um, and how your books are working to help children hear a different story or how to process 
what we're doing. You have a beautiful moment with Virgil in particular, because I'm thinking of some of that language that Chet uses, and you have a beautiful moment with Virgil where he uh, takes back that he doesn't want to be called Turtle, which is just this loving nickname that his family has for him. It's just a, it's just a loving term, but th that's not what he wants to be called. So this moment of, of, of asking or demanding just to be seen. So I appreciate that. We want to turn our questions to focus on the classroom and, and our role as teachers with these books, because we're on the front lines, right? We are these gatekeepers who are giving books to children and who are helping children see themselves through these books. They can sit on our library shelves and they can sit in our, our classroom book bins, but it really takes us handing them to a child often. Um, so I wonder if we can go through what you each feel is the role of teachers in helping to create a safe space for children to be their unique selves and to value sensitivity in, in general with one another. I know it doesn't just limit to boys, yeah. Um, but yeah. I think um, I really loved what Kekla said about uh, raindrops in a bucket and I think a lot of times you can have a, a bad bucket and you can also have a good bucket and all the negative language that you mentioned, it takes a really strong kid and a really strong person to overcome what other people, because you look to your peers when you're that age to tell you about yourself. And if your peers are using that language, that's how you start to feel. And it takes a really strong person to overcome and say, okay, you don't define who I am, I define who I am. Um, and usually you have to go through a lot of pain before you get to that point. So I think books are one of those tools. And I think absolutely teachers who see kids every day. I think um, one thing outside of, outside of books and just one-on-one -on -one classroom is um, even, I, I can think back, whenever you're a kid who, who's like quiet and, and shy and introspective, you tend to not get a lot of compliments mm -hmm. because you tend to not do a lot of things that get compliments. Like no one says, hey, that was a great job staying in your room for four hours. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> way to go, not speaking to anyone all day, you know. Uh, that just does not happen. Um, so I think it's important to see those kids who may get overlooked because I was one of those kids I'm sure many people in this room were one of those kids because when you give those kids a compliment um, they'll put it in their pocket and they'll remember it forever and they may not even show you because you know they're way too cool to show you that that you've affected them um, but when you're a big athlete and the star cheerleader and all this other stuff people are constantly giving you praise if you never get praise and one teacher says, that was a great job you did. I loved what you wrote. You had really interesting things to say. That kid will remember that, I promise you, for the rest of their life, because I can remember all those compliments um, to a T, because there weren't many of them. So I think, uh, as far as using books as a tool, I think, I think one thing that, that we, we tend to do as adults is we want to like bubble wrap the kids and protect them. Mm -hmm. Um, and we don't want to use words like fag, retard, and to, to incite dialogue, obviously, because I got a lot of pushback for using the R word in Hello Universe, and my answer was always that those are the words that bullies use, and I think children are smart enough to know. Like, one reader said, I wish there had been an author's note to tell young readers that this isn't a word you're supposed to use, and I thought, well, I think they're smart enough to know that the jerk is using the words, therefore it's not a good word to use. So I think another thing is to, when we have conversations with them, is to not condescend or be patronizing and to recognize them, young people, for the three-dimensional creatures that they are, you know, and they have their own belief systems and their own opinions and to ask them. And using books as a gateway is, is a perfect way in to, to start those conversations. Like, why do you think Chet uses these words? Um, you know, how do you feel about, uh, or even just asking point blank, what are some stereotypes about boys and girls? What does it mean to be a, a boy and a girl or non-binary? However you want to open up the conversation. You don't have to sugarcoat everything, and I think we tend to want to do that with, with young people. But um, they're very smart, complex creatures, just as they are. They just they're just not as old as us yet, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, I think, I think it's, such a, it's such an interesting question and thing to consider because I do think that, you know, the 
in a sense, the question is the answer, right? The role of teachers, you know, the role that we have as teachers is to create <laughs> a safe space, right? Um, the question is sort of how do we do that and what does that look like, especially when these issues that we're trying to overcome for ourselves and for our students are very, very systemic to our society in general. Um, so I think that one piece of creating that safe space is to do our work on ourselves and our own biases and trying to, um, to learn the ways that we might inadvertently be perpetuating the stereotypes that we would intellectually say we want to overturn. Because there's so many subtle ways that we accidentally reinforce gender stereotypes, you know, mm -hmm. constantly telling young girls that they, you know, their outfit looks nice, right? And yet, you know, we telling young boy, oh, you, that was really brave. Like we, there are, there are sort of systemic uses of language that we just fall into without meaning to. And so I think that we have to look at, um, not just like our intention, but the actions that we are taking on a daily basis with our students and, and what the impact of those actions would be. And it's really hard to do that work because it's all of these micro moments, right? Um, it's what you said in the compliment, right? How did you frame it, right? Thinking about the way that we use language and making sure that yeah. we are changing that language to be positive, um, to be, whether it's to be gender neutral or whether it's to sort of almost subvert some of those <laughs> ways that we tend to compliment people who have a certain identity um, and, and understanding what those are. Because I think we have to be, we have to do more than like have the intention of creating that safe space. We have to um, be looking at all of these small, small ways that we actually do that. But I think it's really important and I think teachers, you know, we have a, an opportunity when students are coming out of their home into the world, this is a place that they spend a lot of time. Um, and so it becomes sort of a second home in that sense. And so the things that we do can be just as formative as the things that, that happen in their home. Um, and so I think that we have to take that responsibility really seriously and recognize that those small, those small compliments really add up, but so do the small microaggressions, yes, <laughs> right? Yes. I love like that idea, like thinking there's a positive bucket and a negative bucket, and we've got to just always be putting into the positive bucket, but in order to do that, we have to be very, very intentional mm -hmm. um, yes. and, and, and really unpack what that means. And I think none of us are ever as open-minded as we think we are. Yeah. Everyone yes. always <laughs> says they're open-minded. Yes. No one says, I'm really closed-minded. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're never as open as we think we are. All of us have stereotypes that we carry with us. And it's, it's about questioning and noticing those moments. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's yeah. perfect. So just very physically, um, I, when I was a kid, I had this wonderful teacher named Mrs. McBride. And she, cre she read us. Um, a picture book. It was, a, it was the fifth grade and she read us and picture books are for everyone all the way your whole life um, for many many reasons and in this case it was because she read us Alexander and the terrible horrible no good very bad day and then she created a corner of her classroom that she called Australia and she told us if any of us was having a terrible horrible no good very bad day we could get up from our seats and we could go to Australia. No permission needed, no questions asked. And so if you've read the bat books you know that Bats has uh, Bats teacher, Mr. Grayson, has an open door baby cakes policy. Baby cakes is the class bunny, and if anybody is having a terrible day, they can go cuddle baby cakes. Just no permission needed, no questions asked. And when I, I talk about this at every school visit, I do because um, it was for me. It was a safe. It was my. It was literally the safe place in my classroom where I could go. I was a kid who was overwhelmed. I had sensory integration issue, issues. Um, I came from a, a rather unsafe, you know, feeling home. I had. Um, you know, really, I didn't understand what was happening socially ever, um, but I knew I could always go to Australia. And so, you know, I went there more than any of the other kids, but even I knew not to use it too much because it was precious and special and I appreciated it. But whenever I talk about this, I can see sometimes the kids, they light up and the teachers all look kind of like horrified, like we would get nothing done, you know? Um, I don't know. I get to say that and I get to go home. And you guys, the teachers are the ones who have to decide whether or not to make a corner like that. But oh, I can tell you that we all respected that corner. And it was, we respected that our teacher trusted us to use it when we needed it and to rejoin the class when we needed it. Um, so I would encourage teachers of students of all ages to create a safe third space within you know, the classroom if possible where people who are feeling and then you, if you know you have a place to go to when you're feeling overwhelmed and exhausted, then you're more likely to notice that you feel overwhelmed and exhausted and take care of yourself so that you don't then have the violent or emotional outbursts later that came from repressing your own emotional exhaustion and then it comes out in a way, why does that boy keep freaking out on the playground? Well, maybe it's because he doesn't have a place to go that feels quiet and nurtured and safe where he 
can you know and so we would say i i need a break i, I don't i'm you know i don't know if we said i doubt it we said i'm feeling emotionally overwhelmed but giving your kids that language too like talking up you know a lot i think saying i you know as as people in the room as teachers like i felt emotionally exhausted today and wow i felt overwhelmed by all the noise i encountered on my way to work and just being whole people with our kids so that we model for them what it feels like to say those words so that they can then have that vocabulary <laughs> we don't know those things exist in the world until we hear them words are so amazing where they create meaning and they can create they can create an understanding of something that's happening inside and then you have the, the tag for that thing and you can then you can use it so using as many opportunities as we can to be whole people with our children, whether it's in the classroom or the library or, or the home. Um, yeah, I think is, is, and giving them a space if you can, um, and give, maybe giving them as much ownership. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of being a student is a not about consent. You know, there's a lot of uh, top down in education uh, for better or for worse. Kids don't want to necessarily be there. Um, it's not necessarily consent based to go to school. Um, and so let's make more opportunities for people to opt in uh, and to opt out. And I've noticed when I speak with kids, when you give them the option to opt out of something, when they come back, they're choosing to be there rather than being forced to be there. And then they're, they're, they appreciate what they're getting more. Um, but that means you have to be really sort of radically okay with allowing them to opt out and dealing with the reality of that you actually are making that commitment that if someone needs to opt out for a little while that they're literally allowed to and not, well, I didn't really mean it. That's five minutes. That's enough. Like, I don't know. I don't know how that works in a classroom. Maybe that's a really radical thing of me to say, but I believe in consent-based education, which means that I think that if a kid doesn't consent to, to being taught in that moment, that we need to figure out a way to honor the person. Yeah, I want to talk about a sort of a related piece of that, which is this idea of grow up. Um, mm -hmm. And I think most of us don't say that to kids, but um, I think some, some of us who teach or parent boys think that. Um, there are moments, I mean, where you get frustrated with boys because you feel like there is this expectation oftentimes that children should be little adults in some ways, and I think girls are more socialized to do that. Um, and there's this sense with the boys that they're emotionally behind and that they need to catch up and they need to kind of get their act together. Um, and I think that there's something very dangerous about that that we have to be thinking about because, you know, it, we're really talking to them in terms of deficit. Um, and I think that's very dangerous because there's a lot that these boys offer and there's a lot of experience and emotional awareness and observation that's there, but we're sort of, we're not focusing on that, we're focusing on the negative. Why can't you get your act together? Or why are you such a mess? Why don't you have your papers in order? Or why are your socks all over the place? You know, whatever it is. Um, and so I think that that's a really important piece of this when, when we're you know, in a classroom setting or any other setting with a boy is to, to let them kind of um, emotionally mature at their own rate and not to foist our expectations of what they should be on them. And that's true, I think, with childhood in general, that we do too much of that, of, of sort of you know, negating childhood by creating many adults. Um, but I think that's particularly uh, happens with boys. So I would love to see you know, educators be mindful of that. Um, and in addition, I think also the, the piece that has been talked about by Aaron and others, but is just seeing some of these boys um, because I think particularly boys who are, um, you know, who don't act out um, and don't raise their hand then become kind of invisible. Um, so I think reaching out to those boys and bringing them in um, is really important for educators to do. So I would just throw those two yeah. pieces out. It seems like, oh, no, no, you go ahead and okay. I'll go after. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, it seems like a lot of what we're raising is just a sort of broad idea of respecting each student's individuality completely separate from any expectations that we would put just across across an identity or across an age group or across et cetera um, that you know like everything I mean I feel like everybody has sort of touched on something like that you're talking about looking for what is strong and good and special about that individual and their work and complementing that so looking at you know consent like is that person engaged and how can I engage that person and when do they need space you know yeah. and this idea that you know we're measuring them against some mythical you know expectation of what they should be these different benchmarks, benchmarks. you know what if it's actually you know just meeting the person where they are and you know it's really hard to do that when you have you know 20 30 yeah. students right in your classroom it makes sense that we would group think around some of that but maybe the way to undo that is to find small ways to allow for individuality and one-on-one -on -one connection 
Yeah, so I, I loved everything you said. I think two things, just to make, you know, just, I'm sure everybody's had this conversation too, but like uh, girls are expected often um, to be a certain way and boys are certain to be a certain way. And then I think when you add another layer, such as race on top of that, those things can become even hyper-expected. Like we expect girls to be oftentimes to be sexual creatures in a certain way and be pleasing to look at and we expect say black girls we often see them through a more sexualized lens and black maybe black boys or boys of color we expect them to grow up and they're maybe in some reasons forced to grow up even faster and so looking at the way that we have the intersections always of of you know of, of race and gender and um, socioeconomic class and all of these things and the other thing you said that is so so interesting to me is this idea of like why why are your papers all with such a mess I think when we think that question we're not actually thinking I wonder why his papers are always a mess it's not really a question it's a you know it's a it's a slap it's a judgment so if we could even phrase it if we even said I geez I really am curious like why you lose your assignments like if someone had said that to me. It was like, why are you always late? Where are your papers? Why do you always lose them? That's not really a question. That's each one of those is like a, you don't you don't have your act together. Was what they were really saying. And I had reasons that I didn't have language for why I lost my papers. I was undiagnosed many things, you know, that I you know didn't get services for. And if someone had said, gee, I wonder, really wonder why. Let's look in your backpack and see what that looks like. And you know, can I look in your backpack? Do you mind if I help you set up a system? Geez, my whole life could have been different if a second grade or a third grade teacher had said, do you think I could help you set that set up a system? How about if every Thursday we check in for five minutes and see how your, your folder system looks? It would have taken a year for someone to help me transform. It would not have happened in a Thursday. But, it, I mean, think of, you know, it would have, it really, it could have changed my whole self and how yeah. I felt about myself. We all have the capacity to, to love a little bit better. Yeah. To see other yeah. people a little bit better. And if we have those questions, like to actually make them questions, you know, yeah. but you're so right that instead it's like this. Yeah, judgment. I'm going to do a, a, a wrap-up question with our panelists, and then I want to turn to you for questions. If you have some, uh, we'd love uh, for that. Um, so um, when you are thinking of us bringing your books into our classrooms, into our libraries, into our instruction, um, how might each of you imagine teachers could use your book to discuss or redefine masculinity or to protect identity or, or any of these um, things that we brought up, these themes we brought up today. Oh, Catherine, they're looking at you now. Oh, okay. It's your turn to go first. Hi. So with, with my book, what I really would love, one way that teachers can use it is to really read about Max's um, and Ahmed's experiences, and particularly with the character of Max, of you know looking at what he is not good at, having a list of what he's not good at, and then what he's good at, um, of rating yourself at what you're good at and not good at, and then kind of thinking about where that falls um, in terms of like what you consider masculine qualities. Um, and it's interesting for kids to do that because you see that, you know, that, you know, so Max is not particularly talented at sports, um, but he is what kids often, when you ask them what is he good at, it turns out he's good at helping people. That's what they say. Um, and to have them think about where they would rate that and to, to sort of challenge some of those ratings. Well, could that be something that is actually, um, you know, more important than being a sports star? Um, is that something that can actually give you self-worth and define you more than saying being the best, you know, kid in your algebra class or whatever is a way for kids to challenge those assumptions, um, both of what it means to be a boy um, and also of how to sort of rate qualities, which is something we need to change our heads around in this country. I mean, the things that we value in terms of achievement um, you know, it, it, I would love to see kids valuing behavior and kindness um, over some of these other types of achievement-based, um, you know, uh, qualities that we, we hold up. Um, so that's something I think is really important. And then talking, what I do also is to talk about um, some role models of men who are nurturing and who are sensitive and have acts of courage. Um, and yet don't fall into the sort of rubric of being macho or being superheroes or being, you know, super <laughs> strong um, and, and to sort of just introduce some of those figures into the conversation as well. Have you seen when you came into Baltimore that all of our signs for the Ravens now, they just changed our signs around town for the Ravens and they all say, only more, no less. Oh, oh yeah. my I don't know where you're going to go after that. Good luck. Yeah, that's exhausting. We are not backing down. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So it, thank you for saving space for less. Yeah, and uh, it's also saving <laughs> 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 That's my campaign. Model. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. But I think also talking about heroism too is an important yeah. part of what I do, and I know Akekla does as well. Is this idea for boys? Because boys really want to have these role models and these heroes, and talking a little bit about how these heroes can be people who actually are just you know are, are kind to others and that matter in ordinary ways um, and that our our fathers and our you know um, our sons and that you know, caretake and that nurture um, like in the bat books all of these things I think are really important to reinforce yeah so I'd say two things the first is that I think we're talking so much and I love so much the work of um, about windows and mirrors and sliding glass doors. So for a lot of kids, I've found that Bat is a mirror book. There's a lot of kids who are on the spectrum, um, diagnosed and they don't know it, or undiagnosed or diagnosed and they know it, who tell me that they see themselves in Bat. I have parents who write to me and tell me that they see their kids in Bat. I had a, a teacher who wrote to me and said that her one of her students who was diagnosed with autism but his parents hadn't told him asked to borrow the book after they read it and took it home and gave it to his parents and said, you need to read this. I'm like, Bat. Uh, so that's pretty great, but it's all—it's also, and it's also a great opportunity for kids who aren't on the spectrum, aren't neuroatypical, to get a, a little bit of an insight into what it's like to be a kid who is neuroatypical, and it's an opportunity for them to start more questions with, I wonder why he did that, as opposed to, I can't believe you did that, um, because Bat does some things, and sometimes people don't act so well, like he has this... Um, He's grateful to his sister, and so he does her this great kindness of taking her pajama top that she loves and putting it in with the skunk kit so that he will get used to her smell, so that he will love his sister. It's a very, so the skunk kit will love the sister. It's a very kind thing, but the sister can't believe that he's taken her pajama top and has put it in for the baby skunk to, like, sleep and pee on. I mean, she thinks he's done this to her. So instead of saying, why, you know, I can't believe you did that thing, Encouraging your students to start with, I wonder why he did that thing. I wonder why she, so take the book. Why do you think Bat did this? I wonder why is such a great phrase that we can say that a million times a day. I wonder why she did that. I wonder why he thought that. That is such a helpful thing. The second thing is I had this moment when I was at a school visit, and it was a pre-K through sixth grade. The whole school read the book, and the oldest kids came in first and filled up the auditorium. And very last, this little pre-K class came in, and each of them was wearing a little sling made out of just a piece of cloth with a stuffed animal in it. And every single one of those children, I know, I was crying. I have pictures. The whole time I was talking, they sat in the very front, and they sat there, and they rocked their babies, All, every single one of them. And I was like, we need more opportunities to be caregivers and to be nurturers. And so I say, bring in the class animals and make the slings and carry baby animals in them. And it was they were the quietest, most attentive group in the entire room because they had someone to take care of the entire hour and this that na they naturally there were four they were rocking and holding their babies boys and girls and you know non-binary kids who I may not have recognized as non-binary the whole spectrum of children with babies and I thought do that give your give each of your kids a sling and a baby a baby stuffy and you know see how it changes your classroom and then send me pictures <laughs> <laughs> She is. Um, at Alana K. Arnold. I, uh, I love to get the pictures. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, actually, I think Six Malone can be part of a lot of different kinds of conversations um, about the issues that we've been talking about. For me, the most important thing I would like to see readers take from the book or to see taught about the book is this idea of, of accepting yourself and recognizing that you have something to offer, that you are already inherently more than ordinary. And I think that's a really hard thing for a lot of people to grasp, especially when they're young and are told, oh, you know, wait till you grow up, or what are you going to be when you grow up? Not what are you now? Who are you now? Um, and so I think this idea of, like, we, we always, a lot of us often want to be someone else. We look at other people and we go, oh, that's so cool. I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I want to be like that. It's always about what, how to make ourselves different than what we are. And I think that there's a balance between the things we aspire to, right? We want to learn and grow and become better. I think that's a great thing to want and to, to, to aim for, but there's a way to do that that's about being more of yourself, mm -hmm. not about becoming somebody else. And so I, I, I would like to see readers talking about that and, and, that. and, and learning to love themselves and what they have to offer. I want 
a baby stuffy now. You should have one. You can all be rocking. You know, everyone, I'm going to start giving them out of the door. I'm a real baby animal. Yeah, yeah, um, me too. So I think with uh, Hello Universe, so anytime I start a novel and I'm doing the character building, the one thing I always ask the characters is, what are you most afraid of? And that really serves as like a, a shooting off point for me for all my characters because it tells you so much about them. And I think especially for boys who are taught that um, they're not allowed to be afraid of things, um, it could be a really good question to ask because Virgil, I think more so than many of my other characters I've written, he's afraid of a lot of stuff. He's afraid of the dark. He's afraid of talking to Valencia. He's afraid of his bully. He's afraid of... Uh, telling his parents how he feels about his nickname. So he has a lot of fears. And I think it would be interesting to talk to, use that as a starting off point to talk to young people or ask them what are their greatest fears and allowing them, if, if, you, if it's not uh, a discussion to have outwardly, but maybe even just write it down. And I think it's also important um, that every writing assignment doesn't have to be about uh, you know, I'm going to revise this and I'm going to hand it back and you're going to turn it back into me. Maybe it's just an assignment where they can write freely um, about what they're most afraid of. And they don't have to worry about grammar or sentence structure. They can write sideways on the page if they want to. They can write upside down. They can write however they want. But the point being just uh, to give them room for creative expression and to share something in a safe environment um, and maybe they give it back to the teacher, maybe they throw it in the trash, whatever they do with it. Um, but I think that, you know, especially boys, they're, they're not allowed to be scared of things. Um, and I think it's important for all of us to know the things that scare us and to be able to verbalize it, uh, whether on paper or out loud, because that helps us confront the things that make us afraid. Thank you. Um, I just want to say that it seems like we're asking so much of teachers to yeah. like teach Life the class, right? Right. Not, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> but just like the emotion. Tell your children to confront their fear. Right. <laughs> but I mean, like, what are you afraid yeah. of? Good luck with that, yeah. by the way. Like, I mean, like your job is to is to teach them the skills they need academically. But we're also, and I see this because I do a little bit of teaching too. I find that my job is also to sometimes be like this therapist role, but I'm not a therapist, you know? And my job is to be a parent sometimes, but I'm not this person's parent. And I, I want to just say thank you for, I wouldn't, I couldn't do your job. I don't really, um, it, that these things, like it scares me to imagine being a teacher and asking everyone to tell me their fears. And then, because then I have to, I have to do something with that. I have like this, uh, this responsibility to, to support the kid that as a writer, I get to just go home and, and do this thing. And so I think teachers are so, valuable and important to actually then digest all that and then help the students become whole people as well as good academic learners. And I, I, I hope that you are all getting the support from your teaching communities to do all those things. And uh, if you're not, then that's a whole other conversation that we should be having on how to support our teachers in those ways. Because it's really, it seems like beyond the pay grade to, to deal with these big emotional most important questions. Beyond the pay grade is the, <laughs> the theme of the ACT. Yeah. 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 Join us at the 2020 conference for Beyond the Pay Grade. Um, Are we out of time? There's some more questions. No, okay. We have about 15 oh, minutes okay. left yeah. for questions. Yeah. Oh, you um, did a good job. We, we, we did great on time. Can we please have a round of applause, though, for our audience? We have, um, the authors have uh, some handouts and bookmarks, and I've got podcast stickers if you want them. Um, and we're also, I'm sure, welcome to do the three H's. Do you do the three H's in your classroom? That you greet or, or exit with students with a uh, high five, a handshake, or a hug, and that is for, for the individual to choose. So if, oh, you're, like if you're welcome to the three H's, you're welcome to ask for one of the three H's. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by me, Matthew Winner, in my library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 550 episodes at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect the ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? 
writing a review on iTunes, or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.